Peter Kreeft, who is the uh, chair of philosophy at Boston College, said a few years back, sex is the effective religion of 21st century America. That's a pretty apt expression, I would say. I think sex is the effective religion of 21st century America. But it's a very apt expression, not just because of that, because that is a good description of 1st century Corinth. We've been going through this little section on sexuality. You're like, who's obsessed with sex, Mike, you or Paul? Well, actually, God is. God is going a few chapters through this because he knows we need some really good teaching on how we steward the gift of human sexuality. They weren't stewarding it real good at all. Sex outside the confines of marriage was normalized and vastly accepted in the city of Corinth. And as we saw last week, this wasn't probably a very culturally palatable topic, but Paul addressed it. That society was rife with homosexuality, just as ours is today. I hit that last week. But just as there was a lot of homosexual sin, heterosexual sin was epidemic. In fact, if we want to talk about pandemics, that was a true pandemic. Heterosexual sin, they were wiling out left, right, and everywhere in between. Now, let me just give you one, maybe one visceral glimpse into this. In the city of Corinth, on the south side of the city, there was a mountain that soared 1,900 feet up into the air. On the top of that temple was what was called the Temple of Aphrodite. You know her as the goddess of love. Maybe more appropriately, we would call her the goddess of lust. And every day, scores and scores and scores of Corinthian citizens and people actually from the outlying districts would come in, trek up that temple mount in order to worship through temple priestesses. Y'all catch me? That's what they did. It was accepted. It was perfectly normal. Nobody batted an eye about that. Of course, that's what we do. We go up and we worship Aphrodite. That's what they did there. It was replete in the culture. And see, marriages there, they weren't based on love, like we would know biblical love. They weren't based on commitment. And yeah, with some attraction mixed in, to be sure, their loves, their their marriages, I should say, were completely based on power and political affluence. If we marry, we'll be able to do something more as far as it comes politics and power. Wives were for having babies. Everything else was for having fun. And nothing was out of bounds for this culture. And it ain't so different today, is it? Sex outside of God's gracious and glorious design between one man and one woman in holy covenantal matrimony in which they're faithful to one another exclusively is sex outside of that just normalized. The reality is you will be deemed narrow-minded if you hold to a biblical sexual ethic. You're going to be called old-fashioned. Some people even say you are hateful if you say, listen, man, I'm, I'm not judging you. I'm just saying God tells us sex is a glorious gift 
for one man, one woman in covenantal marriage in which both parties are faithful. And so we, we are so utterly soaked in and steeped in a super-sexualized culture, we are not even aware of it. I mean, I, I read about how Disney does their movies, and over time, they have made Pocahontas, Pocahontas, is that right? Look much more alluring than she did in the 50s. That, that's the design right there. The dad's in and all that. We don't even know it. If you, if you talk to a fish and that fish could talk and you say, hey, what's it feel like to be wet? You'd be like, I, I don't know what you're talking about. Because they've always been wet. And I'm just trying to say we are so steeped in a sexualized culture that whether it's magazines targeting young teens and, every, and, and all that other stuff, it is dialing in on that. And that's why I would say this passage for today is so doggone crucial and critical and applicable for us today. Now, I want you to remember the words from one of the greatest movies ever, Run, Forrest, Run. The message today is run from sexual immorality. And I'm not quoting Forrest, somebody talking about Forrest Gump. I'm actually quoting the verse I just read, right? He says, flee from sexual immorality. That's the big idea. What's the big idea today? So if I say, hey, what did you hear about today? You, the answer would be, yeah, run from sexual immorality. Now, I'm going to give you a little subtitle there, too. I want you to remember this. And the reason is your body counts. What's the subtitle? Second big idea, if you will. Run from sexual immorality. Why? Because your body counts. Now, what we're going to do is this. We're going to see the rationale the world uses with your flesh to get you to run into sexual immorality. Okay? The rationale, the fallen rationale of the world to, that tries to get us to run into sexual immorality. And then we'll take a little bit longer look at the reasons God gives us to flee or run from sexual immorality. Good to go? So number one, the rationale the world uses to get us to run into sexual immorality and not actually flee from it. Here's the first rationale. It goes like this. I'm free. Who are you to tell me what to do with my body? I mean, it's my body, right? Don't tell me nothing. I can do what I want. This is my body. And most people, it doesn't matter what their religious or irreligious perspective is. Read this with sociologists and philosophers and everybody else, that the sexual, so-called sexual revolution of the 1960s ushered in a tidal wave of sexual immorality of unprecedented proportions in our day and age. I mean, the arms of tolerance have stretched so wide, they're now closing to choke the life out of us. This mentality says, you're free to do as you please. Don't let anybody tell you what to do with your body. You're free. It is your body. Now, of course, you expect non-Christians to say that, right? I mean, playing a couple of hardball teams, and one of the guys was getting married, and some other guy said to him, well, this is your last night to go do whatever you want. I mean, I, I expect that mentality with lost people, right? But here's the thing. This was infecting the church of Corinth. They were imbibing that. Verse 12, chapter 6, 
all things are lawful for me, Paul writes. Now, did you know something particular about that expression right there? It's bound by what? Quotation marks. Why is it bound by quotation marks? Because the um, translators rightly understood that Paul is quoting a popular pseudo-Christian quote and philosophy that was circulating around the church of Corinth. People were saying, hey, listen, all things are lawful. But the idea of what they were saying is, listen, because of grace, because we've experienced grace, nothing is out of bounds for us now. We've been forgiven. We've got grace. All things are lawful. We can do anything. All things are lawful. And just like people do today, they were ripping gospel truths out of context. Whom the Son sets free is free indeed. You're free. Do whatever you want. Or that verse from Romans 6, people misuse. You are no longer under the law. It doesn't mean do whatever you want to do, right? And today, Christians will concede, you know, that may not be the best thing for me to do, but you're just, you're just going through your youth, or you're just in this season of your life, and besides, God is a God of grace, and God is a God of forgiveness, so, you know, it, it's really not that big deal. You'll be forgiven. Now, my answer to that is, well, are you sure? Are you sure? Paul does agree here in this text, all things are lawful. Like, he, he would probably say that with qualifications, right? In fact, he gives the qualification. He says, but not all things are helpful. And that he's using massive understatement right there. Not all things are beneficial. So the question we should ask when we are exercising a freedom we have in Christ is this. Is it helpful to my walk? Is it beneficial to my walk with God and the way I'm reflecting God before a lost and watching world? Because when we don't ask that question, often what we think is freedom is actually leading to slavery, which is why Paul says in the next verse, or latter part of verse 12, he says, all things are lawful by me. He quotes it again for me. But then what does he say? But I will not be dominated by what? By anything. Paul is acknowledging that when you get this freedom thing twisted, you actually go back into slavery. And he doesn't want that. All things are lawful, but not everything is helpful. And since the fall of humanity, the affliction of addiction has been the curse on humankind. We are just prone to some kind of addiction. You think about your life right now. Think about something that you can't stop doing. You know in your head you ought not to do it, right? But you just keep going that way. And Satan is so crafty, he will use our freedoms to bring us back into bondage. But, of course, none of that can really satisfy, can it? Take somebody who's addicted to new cars. I love that new car smell. That, fortunately, is not one of my addictions, a high-price addiction. I love the smell of the new car. I love, you know, a few thousand miles, uh, the wind, well, not me, but somebody here, blowing through my hair, you know? And a few shopping cart dents later, and it smells like old Taco Bell inside. And then you just saw the next model's out, even though it's not the next year. And I think I want that. And 
man, that that thing's just going to be a bucket of rust in a, in, in, a, in a yard one day, right? Pushing daisies and housing rats. See, nothing can satisfy him. Paul is trying to say, don't buy the lie that because you have grace, you can do whatever you want. You're not free in that sense. In fact, we're called bond servants of the Lord, right? And as we walk as bond servants, we actually experience true spiritual freedom. Now, here's the second lie. People say, my body is for my pleasure. God gave me a body. He obviously gave it to me because he wants me to have pleasure. Now, is that true? There's a yes and there's a no to that, right? Here's, here's how they were put. Another dumb motto circulating around this church. It's, it's in quotes because it was a motto of pseudo-Christians. They said, hey, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food. In other words, God gave us stomachs, and he allowed us to figure out how to make all kinds of great foods, put those two together, let me get after it. They were, they, they were twisting scripture. Jesus did tell Peter, rise, kill, and eat. And since it's just about opening day weekend, that is every hunter's favorite verse. Go. There's, nothing, there's no meat that's unclean. And by the way, there is no meat that's unclean. There may be health and diet reasons you don't eat certain foods, and that's all, that's all fine and great. There's no holiness reason under the new covenant. But they twisted that. They took it to the extreme. And archaeologists tell us that they had these banquet halls in Corinth, and they had a, a kind of a large room on the side of the larger banquet hall room, and it was called a vomitorium. Any idea what they did at a vomitorium? Just like the Hunger Games, right? Eat, 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 and then purge, and then go eat over again. Now, the ancient Greeks, and this infected the church, and it still does today, had two ways of dealing with our flesh. And by flesh, I mean our fallen nature, and sometimes not our fallen nature, just our body. You had somebody called the Epicureans. You ever heard of them? We don't really talk about the Epicureans, but they were a group of people who said, basically, hey, listen, when it comes to these bodies, you ain't taking it with you, so... You might as well do what you want with it, duh, because you're not going to have it forever anyway. And it was based on a false duality, a false dichotomy. It said this, your body is temporary, your material part, and your immaterial part, your soul and your spirit, they are eternal or permanent. So since this is just temporary, this body thing, you might as well just do what you want. I ain't taking it with you, so just use it like a rental car. Who cares about how you take care of it because you're going to have to turn it in anyway. Now, some Christians now were applying that not just to the stomach and food, but to the body and sex. <laughs> our private parts are for sex, and sex are for our private parts. It would be kind of what the thinking was. And I'm leaving my body behind, so I might as well not only eat as much as I want, I might as well do whatever I want with it sexually. In fact, they, know, they add another layer of twistedness to this. They actually said, well, listen, since your body is temporary, you can't even really sin with it. You can't sin with your body. If you do something in your body, it's not really sin. It's only your soul and spirit. Now, that's just so twisted, right? But isn't that just as twisted as somebody who's saying, well, I love Jesus as they are sexually immoral. 
just as twisted, right? So the Epicureans, that, that was their approach to dealing with the flesh. Just give into it because you ain't going to take it with you anyway. Then on the other side, other extreme, you had somebody called the Stoics. You know, be Stoic, gritted. Don't show the emotion. Stoics. And Stoics said, don't give your body anything. Because it's inherently bad. Bad, 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 bad. Your body is bad. It was another kind of false dualism. And by the way, some Christians, a few, seem to embrace that. That, that the good gifts of God, whether it's food or drink or sex, you know, th- their mentality is, I really enjoyed that. That must have been bad. You know, no, no. God does give us some good gifts, right? He does give us things to enjoy under the stewardship of the Spirit. Now, we don't want to go that way. We, we don't want to go the way of Stokes, but, but let's be honest. Which ditch do modern American Christians tend to fall in? Stoics, don't give anything to your body, or Epicureans, do whatever your body wants? Which one? Come on. Be real, fam. Which one? Epicureans. That's exactly right. Now, Paul Barnett in his commentary says, quote, few forces in life prove to be as overwhelming as sexual arousal. This powerful fire is easily lit and very difficult to extinguish. Lack of self-discipline quickly leads to addiction so that sexual gratification becomes a prison. Its destructive danger needs to be recognized, he says, ahead of time. Ahead of temptation. Sexual sin and sexual purity, I should add, never, never, never occur in a vacuum. It's not just you in your private. It, it doesn't work that way. Sexual sin and sexual purity will have massive collateral damage or massive collateral good. Sexual promiscuity, if I'm saying that word right, will impact your family for generations to come. And don't we see evidence of that everywhere? But on the other hand, sexual purity will impact your family for generations to come. And we can see that too. I just want to say, you can flip the script for your family. I, I don't know what your background is. I'm not thinking of anybody at all. I just know this is the culture we live in. And maybe you've gone down that, 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 that direction. You're swimming down that stream. Listen, by God's grace, you can flip the script. Paul will say to Timothy, and this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, but rather you know how to carry your body in holiness and honor, not in the lust of the flesh like the Gentiles. So what are the two lies that we don't want to buy? I'm free, and my body is for my pleasure. There's truth in that, and there's lies in that, right? Okay, now, the reasons we are to run from sexual immorality, I got to run now. This this centers on the body. This is your body counts thing right here. Your body counts. We got to make sure we don't have a Corinthian view of the body, but we have a Christian view of the body, okay? So here it is. Number one, your body, there's six of them. I'm going to run through these. Your body, he says in verse 13b, is for the Lord. The body, he says, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Your body is a gift for the Lord. And that steers us away from Epicureanism, just give it what it wants. 
and Stoicism don't give it anything. Rather, he cast a positive vision, a positive vision for how you use your body in accordance with his principles, in accordance with the Word of God. That's just doggone place, right? But that wouldn't be good stewardship. Or I could be a Stoic and I could say, no, I, I could never use this, this offer, you know, right? Now, I got to figure out how to do that, and I hope I can. But do you understand the illustration? I want to be a good steward of the gift of that house in Ireland. I want to be a good steward of this body. But now this leads to the second reason your body counts. No, verse 14, number two, your body is going to be raised. Look at it. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us by his power. Now, we are less than Christian in thinking about our bodies a lot. Have you ever said, well, my body's just a shell? I think I probably have said that myself. Maybe you have. I don't know. Like, you know, we almost have a hermit crab idea of our bodies. Hermit crab gets a shell, lives in it for a while, and then ditches it. And I don't know if I'm right about this, but then they get another shell. But they come out, you know, that shell isn't part of their rest of their body, right? And sometimes we, we give people the idea that, you know, your body is, is, it, is just kind of a temporary thing, a shell. Do you know your body's not a temporary thing? You're going to have your body forever. It's part of you. Now, it's going to be a resurrected body, and that brings up a whole host of other questions, which we're not going to entertain this morning. But here's the point. Just as Jesus was raised in the flesh from the dead, on the tales of his resurrection, we too will be raised at the end at the end of the age, we're going to be raised to worship and live forever. That's another reason our body counts. It ain't just temporary. It's part of you forever. Number three, your body is joined to Christ. I'm going to read verses 15 through 17. I really don't have time to unpack this too much, but hopefully enough to get the idea. Paul says, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. That's a very strong, strong word, like dog on it. No way. Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. He's saying, how can we take these bodies that are glued to Jesus in a way of speaking. There's this thing called the, this mystical union with Christ. How can we take our bodies who are glued to Jesus and glue them to another person in an act of immorality outside the confines of biblical marriage? He says, how can you do that? And again, it uses the strongest possible language. When he says never, man, that is, I'm just telling you, that's a powerful expression. Why is he making such a big deal out of this? Answer, because it's not just our spirits that are joined to Christ, it is our bodies too. Now, I understand there are obvious differences in this analogy. But Paul is saying, just as it is very offensive for a man to violate his sacred union with his wife or a wife to violate her sacred union with her husband, it is all the more all the more heinous, all the more egregious, all the more wicked to violate our sacred, sacred, sacred union with Christ, body and soul. We're joined to Christ. You don't drag him in those directions. Number four, 
your body can be sinned against by you. And of course, the bodies of other people as well. Verse 18. Flee from sexual immorality. There's the tagline for the sermon. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but what? The sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Now, is Paul saying, don't worry about other kinds of sin, it really ain't no big deal? No. All of our sin nailed Jesus to the cross. But what Paul is saying is that there is something particularly damaging about sexual sin. And he's letting us know because he cares about us. I should say, God is letting us know because he cares about us. So that should cause us to ask the question, well, how is sexual immorality particularly self-destructive? Anybody want to know that? He's saying that. So what does that even look like? What does that mean? Well, I want you to remember this. Your body is more than flesh and bones and organs and tissue and tendons and all of the rest. No, when we talk about your body, we're talking about your mind. We're talking about your memories. We're talking about your consciences. We're talking about your emotions and all of those things, your mind, memory, conscience, emotion, all of that, you can inflict self-induced scars on them by not obeying and following God's good direction in this matter. Lewis Meads, Christian ethicist and theologian, said, quote, there is more to sex than meets the eye or excites the genitals. He says there's no such thing as casual sex, no matter how casual people are about it. No one can take sex out at night and put it away until he wants to play with it again. Nobody can go to bed with someone and leave his or her soul parked outside. That's pretty good. He goes on to say, therefore, the demand for abstinence is not a killjoy role, role, rule cooked up and plastered on, quote, the abundant life by some group of anti-sexual Christians. It's actually respect for reality as we know it. He's just telling it like it is, right? It damages. And I, I listen, I am so glad God's grace washes away our sins, all of them, past, present, and future. But there are some scars on our minds, on our emotions, on our consciences and memories that while in the grace of God do fade away over time, will not finally be abolished until we are fully glorified. So... I want to appeal to whoever, as a pastor, as, 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 as a spiritual father, as a friend, as someone who very much imbibed the ethic of the world for a quarter of center in my life. Go God's direction on this. Go God's direction on this. I, man, I wish I could do certain, I wish I could undo things in my past. I can't, right? I just can't. I don't have a time machine. And while I have been forgiven and fully cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, 
there's just frankly, and just being candid, some struggles I have had that I would not have had had I gone God's direction. And again, I, I can't emphasize enough, I am glad that God's grace forgives and cleanses and sets free and does all of that. But I'm also thankful for grace that can tell some of you proactively, don't even go that direction. Don't even go that direction. And for some of you who say, well, I've kind of started to slide that direction, it's never too late to do a U-turn. You can turn around by the grace of God and put all of that under the blood and now walk in a new direction. That's what he's done for me. Uh, let me move on. I got two I want to hit, and then we want to have the Lord's table. Number five, he's going to take his God word again now. Here's a reason. Your body is the dwelling place of God. But check this out. This is very strong. Verse uh, 19, or do you not know that your body is a temple of who? The Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God. In the Old Testament, the sacred place where God especially hung out, obviously a lot of it was, you know, symbolic, was what place? The temple, and specifically the the ultimate clean room in the temple, the place called the Holy of Holies. Do you know in this church age who is the Holy of Holies? If you're a Christian, raise your hand. You are, you are, you are, you are, you are, you are, I am. We are the Holy of Holies. We're the dwelling place of God in this new covenant era. God lives inside his people by his spirit. That ought to drop us to our knees, honestly. God lives in us, full stop. The Holy Spirit lives within us. The temple, listen, the Corinthians would climb up that old temple mount to Aphrodite and worship sex as their God. But as Christians, we are the temple of God now. And we worship the God of sex, the God who gave sex and all other good gifts, and we do it his way through intimacy in holy marriage and celibacy in singlehood, which we are going to hit those things pretty hard the next three weeks, so come back. But your body, family, is a dwelling place of God. Finally, your body was redeemed at infinite cost. I want you to look at this. We close with this. He says, you are not your own. For why, why, aren't, you, why aren't we our own, those who raised their, their hands? Why aren't we our own? What's the answer here? For because you were bought with a price. And the word bought could be translated ransomed or rescued or redeemed. Brothers and sisters, we were bought with a massive price. I want to tell you a very unlikely love story. There's a guy named Hosea. He was told to marry a woman to massively understate her issue who had a spotty background and who would have a very spotty future. So he marries this woman who again and again will spurn his holy love to go sell herself on the street. 
man after man, man after men, one night stand after one night stand. And we know, we know where that lifestyle leads. Pretty, pretty soon, she is so used. She's literally on an auction block. Stripped down naked so people can gawk over her like a piece of meat and figure out, well, what would she be worth after all she's done and been with? So they start holding the auction, and the auctioneer, he probably says, well, I better start pretty low. Do I have five shekels? And from the back of this group of men, five shekels. Only it's a voice she can recognize. It's the voice of her husband. Somebody says, well, she's maybe worth something a little bit more. Six, seven, he says. And on and on and on up until 15. When no one moves after that, bam, gavel comes down, and he has redeemed her out of the slavery of her sexual bondage. And he didn't do it to punish her. He did it to rescue her. He didn't do it for some kind of sick revenge on her. He really loved her. And that's what God did for us. The Lamb of God, the firstborn of the ages, the son of his love, lay down his life. And he stepped up on that auction block for us. And he paid the price with his own blood so that we could be forgiven of our sin, sexual sin included, and walk in a new life of righteousness in which we are being perfected from one level of glory to another, no matter what your past was. That's the power of the gospel. And again, Jesus did it for all who would turn from their sleeping around, whether it's physically sleeping around or just spiritually, because all of us sleep around in some way, shape, or form. That's what idolatry is, looking for love in all the wrong places. So he says, glorify God in your body. That's how he ends. How do you glorify God in your body? You run from the lies that fuel sexual immorality. I'm free. My body's for my pleasure. And you embrace these gracious truths all centered on your body because your body counts. Indwelt now by the Spirit of God, purchased by the blood of the Son of God.